This is Mark Brown for Beyond the Room at the Department of Psychiatry's 50th anniversary bash at the University of Oxford. And I'm here with... Paul Shalkovskis, um, who's the director of the Centre for Psychological Health. So that's a very impressive title. Can you tell the people at home more about what you do and kind of a little bit more about your understanding of what this day was about? Okay, well, what I do is I train clinical psychologists. I'm also just about to open a clinic and generally interested in the dissemination of evidence-based treatments and evidence-based training. Uh, what I make of today, I was only here for the morning because unfortunately I wasn't able to be here for the, 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 the later part. Uh, I really enjoyed it because it was a, it was a lot of nostalgia, mm -hmm. but, but also what it was doing was tracing the fundamentals of the development of psychological treatments. I mean, my view is that psychological treatments are completely amazing because for a relatively small investment, what's happened in, in research terms, we've developed some highly effective treatments in a very short time. And that, if you compare that to, say, the, the benefits that we're not reaping from brain imaging studies or genetics and so on, we're not getting anything from those at the moment. We might in the future, and I'm not ruling it out. But the small amount of investment in psychological treatments has really moved things on. It's amazing. It's about putting, it's about putting theory into action, isn't it? And you were mm. talking about health anxiety and OCD and stuff like that, and you were talking about that as an experience, not a symptom, mm -hmm. almost. Um, I think that'll be kind of quite interesting to a lot of people who weren't here today. Yes, and, th and it's, this is controversial, but I mean, I mean, as it stands at the moment, there's no particular reason to believe that biologically, in terms of what, what's actually happening fundamentally in the brain, it's any different if you've got OCD or health anxiety or any other of the anxiety disorders. It looks like it's an exaggeration of what happens normally. So everybody gets anxious. So the question isn't why does somebody get anxious, but the question is why is for some people, is it particularly intense? Why is the anxiety so strong? And then why does it persist? So if you take social anxiety, for example, everybody, including myself, are shy at some point in their life, usually earlier in their life. Um, and, but that doesn't mean that you've got social phobia. But for some people, the social phobia interferes with them, their ability to, or the social anxiety interferes with their ability to do things. And it takes over. So it's more intense and it's more persistent. So I'm not shy in the way I was when I was 15, 16. And it's, you know, things have, have moved on. Now, that's really interesting because I think all of the problems that we see potentially are working that way, that we've got things which are built into the way we are. We react to threat by anxiety. Um, because, because things are a bit different now to the way they were in the primeval steps or whatever, the threats are a bit less tangible and we're more likely to misinterpret what's going on as a sign of threat and more likely to get locked into things like safety-seeking behaviours, which is where people do things to try to stop bad things from happening, but also prevent themselves from discovering that bad things don't happen. So that kind of stuff. And I think that we can follow essentially an, an, an exaggeration of normal view for all the problems that we deal with in terms of anxiety and related problems. You said something very, very interesting about kind of therapy being a partnership between the person having therapy and the therapist, trying to hack out a kind of real view of how the world works. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that really, really stuck with me as a very, very different conception from healing or treating, mm -hmm. as a kind of reality making or reality checking. Yes, and, and you know, I mean, I, I've been a therapist for more than 40 years now, <clears throat> um, and I'm absolutely clear 
that I've never done treatment to someone. <laughs> you know, the, the idea that, you know, that, that people are not passive recipients of this. Um, that what actually happens, I mean, all good therapy is helping people to choose to change, to do things differently, to respond differently, to be more flexible. Um, and, and a therapist doesn't do that to you. The therapist opens the possibility. Mm. Um, so as far as I'm concerned, therapy is a matter of empowering. Um, so, you know, if somebody walks into our room, and let's say they've got OCD, and they tell me that they think, they think that they're a paedophile, you know, and, and, and that's kind of what people will say. But they won't put it in quite those terms. They say, well, you know, Paul, I'm a paedophile. I don't know what to do about that. And then what I'm going to do is to say, well, let's look at that because I can see why that's pretty horrible. So, but, but, but is there another possibility? And then we'll talk a bit, and then, and then we'll come up with, well, maybe there's somebody who's very afraid of being a paedophile. And, and actually, more than that, you say, well, perhaps you're a loving father for whom the worst fear is being a paedophile, and you're doing stuff to try to stop to stop yourself being a paedophile, which is actually making it worse. Like you're trying not to think about uh, things you're avoiding being with your kids and so on, and it's just getting worse and worse. Um, so it's kind of, it, it's like helping people dis discover what's really going on. Because if they are a paedophile, mm. obviously the thing to do is to, to make sure that they don't get near the kids. Yeah. yeah. But if it's that they're a loving father who's just afraid of that, then they need to confront the fear. And it's got quite different implications. Mm. But the other thing about it, and this is the thing about you know the two experts thing. Um, it's not enough for me to say you know I'm a white-haired professor with a grey beard and, and lots of experience and letters after my name. So trust me. Actually, what you should be saying is yeah, don't trust me. You know, let's work together and let's see if we can find out what's going on. And you find out. Let's see if you can find out what's really going on. And if this alternative that you're that is your fear is what's there. Well, you need to prove that to yourself because there's no point in just listening to me. Now, the reality is, of course, that, 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 that when you're working with a therapist, you need to have a sense, you need to feel understood. You know, the, and if you don't feel understood, then you're not going to be able to take the leap of faith that's required to change things. And actually, in my view, the only way that people can, can, can feel understood is if the person actually understands. I mean, not completely, but, but gets, that, gets that way. And so, so that's the two experts thing, really. It's me sitting down and saying, well, let, let's you and I talk about this. And we talk about it. And then between us, we work out, yeah, some ideas about what's going on. But then I say, well, let, let's, let's find out the truth in the matter. And then that's going to set you free, because the truth sets you free. It does. But it was a kind of a really, really good segue then into this kind of broader question of this Oxford approach to, you know, psychiatry and research and stuff like that about coming to some kind of conclusion or coming to some kind of understanding of the world and kind of putting that into action. And that requires trust and understanding. Mm -hmm. As you say, kind of really understanding stuff. Mm -hmm. and, and for me, listening from being an outsider, there's a very distinct approach to this whole idea of, of doing with and finding out. Mm -hmm. um, there also seems to be a kind of hopefully innate kind of scepticism mm -hmm. to accepted truths. Um, and there's a thing that you said that struck me very strongly in the panel discussion about if we're going to be questing for new solutions, we need one of those new solutions might be to stop doing things we're already doing. Um, that doesn't seem to be a very prevalent view. Um, could you just unpack it a bit for me? Yes, I'm not sure I entirely agree that it's not a prevalent view. I mean, there are bits of it that, are, that, 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 that have already been done. So, for example, in Anka Illa's talk, this morning, she was talking about the debriefing work with trauma, and what she showed, what that what that study showed, 
was that that if you give people who've been in a traumatic event debriefing, it makes them worse. Yeah. And actually, one of the things that's flowed from that and other studies is that we've stopped offering people debriefing um, in the case in the case of traumatic events. And say after the London bombings, you know, the seven seven uh, thing, that then actually we shifted strategy. So instead of trying to get everybody in there to talk about stuff. Uh, you know, it was a, a watch, watchful waiting and then allowing people access to choose uh, and so on. But, you know, there are, people, there are people working in mental health who essentially have been doing the same thing for you know, 30 years. I think it's good because they've been doing the same thing for 30 years. You know, they, they say, well, this is my clinical experience. <laughs> clinical experience is making the same mistake over and over and thinking that it's good. Um, and there's also people who are invested in, 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 in that and aren't prepared to shift. So, for example, again, we heard Chris Ferbert talk about you know, comparing 100 sessions of psychodynamic treatment with 20 sessions of CBT. Um, now, the reality, you know, the real implication of that is, you know, is, you know, you need another study or so, but by and large, the implication is probably we should be doing psychodynamic treatment for um, eating disorders. And indeed, I've also done a study with health anxiety, which showed that, that it made absolutely no difference at all to have psychodynamic, brief psychodynamic treatment for health anxiety. And you can go further, you know, the, the, I'm, I'm picking psychodynamic mm -hmm. there, but there are a whole range of other things which amount to flummery, smoke and mirrors. Mm -hmm. we, there, is a, there is another thing about the Oxford approach, and, and I think this is very important. I think, I think we also have to assume that when we're trying to help people, these very complex interventions, these things that we do, we do that, we do a relaxation, a bit of that, we talk this way, we say that manual's written and people make fortunes from, from teaching it. Mm -hmm. Probably about seventy percent of what we do is bullshit, smoke and mirrors. Yeah, it, it, and, and 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 there's about thirty percent of what we do that's helpful. We don't know which is the seventy percent and which is the thirty percent. So if you just cut it in half, there's a reasonable chance you cut out, you've thrown the baby out yeah. with the bathwater. So what the research tends to do, and what the research I think I think we're hearing about this morning is about is about trying to get to the nitty-gritty to the core of a particular problem so safety seeking behaviors the way they work for example it's pretty clear now across a whole range of problems that if people do things to try to stop terrible things happening to them those terrible things don't happen then they continue to believe there's a risk of that that that's a problem and if you can if you can hit that if you can help people discover the things that really don't happen like somebody with panic panic disorder you know, with appropriate preparation, get them to run up and down stairs with chest pain, and to their great surprise, they don't, they don't die. And then, you know, well, that's a bit surprising in the context of this, we're back to finding out how the world really works. And if you work on the basis of finding out how the world really works, then you're getting to the core of the difficulties that people have. Yeah. At the same time, and this is really, really important, helping people feel understood, which is about hearing the story and not just giving a bunch of techniques. You can't do that. If, I, you know, if I'm working with somebody, if I don't know who they are, then I don't think they're going to trust me in, enough to, 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 to work in the way that I want to work with them, which means also I have to let them get to know me a bit as well. So it gets complicated. The disinvestment is not disinvestment in, in, in forming good relationships with people. It's disinvestment with stuff like the debriefing, for example, that might make people worse, or that keep people static, that, 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 that allow people to, to continue to make the same, mistakes is the wrong word, but, but to continue the same patterns that have held them in place for years and years. Um, so it's complicated, but we're doing a lot of things which are not effective and we should stop doing that. Thank you for that.